What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Comet ML Office Hours, powered by the Artist of Data Science. It is Sunday, August 1st. Happy August, everyone, man. This is, uh, this is awesome. I can't believe it's going by this quick year. It's going by super fast, man. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Hopefully, you have a chance to tune into the episode that was released just a couple of days ago with Lillian Pearson. She's an OG in the data science game. She's been uh, been a bit of a mentor to me over the last few months, so it was really great to to, uh, to chat with her on the show and then you know get her onto the podcast and and all that stuff. Um, yeah, man, a couple a couple big announcements. I'm happy to announce that I'll be joining the team at Comet ML on uh, September first week of September. Yeah, I'll be joining the team over at Comet. Uh, next week is going to be my last week at Price Industries. Going to get a little bit of downtime and uh, then ramp up and do some awesome stuff over at at Comet. I'm excited about this opportunity and excited to to do some awesome work with the, with the crew over there. Other announcement. Let's see. I, I wanted to pull up something. I, I did a poll a few days ago and the poll was about, um, you know, I was going to do on this 21-day learning journey, right? So let's go ahead and just take a look at the results of this poll. Um, I haven't taken a look at taking a look at them yet, but I'm going to share my screen and pull it up here. What do we have here? And hey, not bad, man. It's a pretty decent amount of votes. Um, looks like NLP and deep learning are tied up, but there's quite a gap in between them. Um, even though there's a couple of percentages off. So, uh, poll ends in just a few hours, three hours left. So if you guys haven't voted already, go ahead and get your vote in. Um, Personally, I want to do the 21 days of papers just because I got like a huge stack of uh, papers that I've been wanting to have an excuse to get through. Um, but my second choice was going to be 21 days of deep learning. So I'm happy that one won. Um, also NLP as well. Um, I mean, honestly, like I want to do all of these. I just needed to figure out which way to prioritize them first. But it looks like we're going to do 21 days of deep learning first, um, unless we get a ton of people to, to vote otherwise. So I'm excited for that. Over the next um, few days, I'll think about what my learning journey is going to be like for 21 days. I'll try to structure out 21 days, what I'm planning on hitting each one of those days. I'll share that plan with you guys on LinkedIn as well. Um, have you guys, you know, comment on it or, or whatever. Um, but I'm excited for it. I'll primarily be using a couple of resources to drive that. I'll be using John Crone's book, Deep Learning Illustrated, and then also uh, Grokking Deep Learning. And then I've got another uh, PDF that uh from springer it's a springer text uh, that's things just simply called an introduction to deep learning or something like that so we bounce around those resources and trying to structure out a learning path <clears throat> i mean be limited by uh by linkedin's you know character limit but i'll try to get some creative stuff in there i'll try to do some interesting like slides or or, or something to, to to make it exciting and fun so hopefully guys uh, follow along with that. I'll make an announcement uh, probably later today and then probably tack another vote on there to kind of get a vote for um, what you guys think the uh, hashtag should be. Um, but yeah, man, super excited to have all of you guys here. Hey, if you guys have any questions, whether you are on LinkedIn, whether you're on YouTube or Twitch, if you guys got any questions at all, go ahead, let me know. I'll go ahead and take those questions. Um, you're also more than welcome to join us right here in the Zoom room as well. There's a link to join us right there in the um, description of the video. But yeah, man, hey, super excited to have you guys here. Yeah. Hey, Arpreet, can I say one little thing? I just want to yes. like, first, I want to just say we're super, super excited as right. the sort of uh, hiring manager for the role we hired yeah. for Harvard. We're like super, super excited. And I've got like so many ideas that I'm going to be sharing with you and, and folks in the community. And then also 
Um, so super excited for you to join us. And then the other thing was I wanted to let you all know that um, for folks who have signed up for um, office hours, we also did a meetup uh, industry Q&A on Monday of last week. And so I'm working on preparing the video and things like that. So I'm going to also send that out to the folks on the list as sort of like a thank you for um, you know, for, for joining the office hours here. I'm going to send you that, that video so you guys can check that out and we'll be doing more of those events in the future. So just in terms of like community things to be on the lookout for, uh, yeah. both, yeah, Harpreet, all your awesome work that you're going to be doing and we're going to be doing together. And then that, the sort of events that we're kicking off too. So, um, just before we got started, I wanted to mention all that. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed that session. I had an opportunity to, to join in, um, and then really learned a lot from this, was it uh, Gradio and, um, Deep not is it yep. deep note deep note deep note yeah so deep note yeah. is like a collab like a more collaborative jupiter notebook type of environment and then yeah. gradio is like this uh graphical user interface for like testing models in real time really cool yeah. tools yeah so austin do you want to like kind of give it give the folks a rundown of what they're going to expect to see from me over the next uh you know length of my tenure at comet i'm excited oh my for god it. yeah yeah i'm excited oh for my it, god yeah yeah so many i think um you know one of the things i've been really focused on is figuring out um, how our, our product stack and how Comet's, you know, experiment management tools can be better, um, can be designed better, more effectively implemented for people who are learning, for folks who want to build portfolios for um, either hiring managers or if they're, you know, if you're bringing data science into your organization, like building portfolios, um, using uh, sort of like a system of record, kind of a Git GitHub-esque system of record for machine learning specifically. So I have some great plans for like bringing, bringing contributors into the mix and, and, couple of those folks actually in the chat right there in the in the zoom nice. call right now who are going to be working with us so um awesome. very excited about that and, and i know you'll be very um instrumental in helping that happen but creating a lot of materials for, for learning and um just learning and and using these tools in more effective ways and then building um just a community around that so very yeah. excited to have so many different plans but event, some of that's going to be events some of it's going to be contributor programs some of it's going to be just um us sharing educational content and, and helping make it easier to use and more accessible to everyone in the data science and machine learning community. Yeah, man. I'm really, really excited for that. That's something that's been, you know, I've been doing that over the last like year, year and a half ish or so. And it just it just the opportunity worked out so well. Um and I'm excited to uh to to help bring all this content to you guys and do all this awesome stuff with you guys. Um but yeah super excited to be joining the team at Comet in uh, just a little little over a month. Um, but hey, if you guys got questions, go ahead. Let me know. I'm keeping an eye out on all the uh, all the streaming platforms. If you got questions, you can put put them right there into the chat. Um, but we can also start right here, man. What's up with uh, Christoph? How's it going, Sunita? What's going on, Asha? What's going on? Good to see you again, uh, Auntie and Marion. How you guys doing? All right. Sounds like everybody's doing good. Let's let's kick this. On. Let's kick I'm this thing great. off. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Supposed to respond. Yeah, yeah, man. You guys got got some responses here. Uh, so let's kick it off with a with a kick off with a question. Something I wanted to, to start off with. Um, how about <laughs> let's think about doing this? How about starting off with one of these? Uh, I'm a data scientist, and I have never done blank type of thing. Um, so because I, I see a lot of these pop up on LinkedIn, I think they're a lot of fun. Um, so let, yeah, let's do that. So you know, I'm a data scientist, and I've never done blank. Does anybody want to kick us off? Anybody want to start off with us? How about this? I'll, I'll do this. I'm a data scientist, and I've actually never deployed a deep learning model into production. Um, that that's that. I've, I'm a data scientist, and I've never actually um, gotten an opportunity to to do neural networks in industry yet. All everything I've done has been classic ML. So I'm excited to be. That, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm super pumped to be going on this deep deep learning guy learning journey with you guys over the next twenty ish days. 
Uh, but what about you guys? Let's uh, let's start with uh, let's start with Sunita since uh, Sunita's mic is uh, unmuted. There, go for it. Sunita. Oh no. Nope. Okay. How about Christoph? What about you, man? I'm not a data scientist. So I don't know how it works. <laughs> yeah, man, you're, you're definitely a data scientist. If you're doing data science work, I consider you a data scientist. Um, so I don't know data science that well because I'm focused only on machine learning. So I'm a data scientist and I never did things outside of machine learning. I could say that. All right. How about, uh, how about Marion or Asha? Happy to hear from any of you guys. I'm a data scientist and I have never had the chance to use natural language, NLP. Yes. Natural yeah. language processing, yes. Can barely yeah. even. Yeah, that's one thing that I, I was uh, going to be working on, Christoph, with was uh, <laughs> doing some projects with uh, the chat logs. Not Sorry, not the chat logs, but the um, transcripts from from uh, the Happy Hour episodes. I've got those uh, getting cleaned right now. I've sent them off to, to a, a freelancer to help get those transcripts clean, and I think it'll be fun to do some interesting NLP with that. But yeah, I've never got a chance to do that at work. It's just, um, I mean, the nature of, I guess, the jobs that I've had, they've always been kind of business focused type of roles where it's like, okay, well, I've got to do something that the business requires me to do, which is typically um, activities that will help them reduce costs or, you know, generate more revenue. Right. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for me, it's not involved any cutting edge stuff. I got some questions coming in right here into the chat. So let's go ahead and take those on. And in the meantime, if you guys have questions, you could go ahead, write them out into the uh, chat, wherever you are, and I'll keep an eye out for them. Question here coming from, uh, I think you pronounce, I don't know how to pronounce this name, but it looks like Agi, Agi, Igi. Uh, Igi says, I'm an ML enthusiast and have started learning Python. How best can one break through into this discipline? Uh, well, if you've started learning Python, that is the right direction. I'd say next thing to do is uh, pick up a good book and work your way through that book. So in particular, yes, doesn't say that one. That is a good one. Hands-on machine learning with scikit-learn and TensorFlow is definitely a good book to, uh, to, to use to break into data science. But if you're completely brand new to machine learning and, and kind of new-ish to Python, you said you just started learning Python. I really enjoyed, uh, there was another O'Reilly book, and I think it was just uh, hands-on machine learning with, with just scikit-learn or introduction to machine learning with scikit-learn. Uh, that was a really good book. And through that book, I got really good familiarity with just how to use Python and how to work with the scikit-learn API. So I'd probably stack both of those books back to back as a way to kind of learn what it is that machine learning is all about. And then from there, I think everybody here already knows what my uh, answer is going to be after you learn that stuff, do a project, do a project, right? And best to make the project really one that's interesting to you because data is actually everywhere, right? Data is everywhere. You generate data, um, whether it's through the music you listen to on Spotify, Pandora, whatever your streaming platform of choice is, the movies you watch on Netflix, your activity, whatever. You can get your hands on that data and just start doing fun, interesting stuff with it. Um, like there's no barriers to entry. Like there are no barriers to entry in this field. I 100% believe that um, there is no barrier to entry to this machine learning. Like to be a CFA, you got to take a bunch of exams. To be an actuary, you got to take a bunch of exams. To be an accountant, you got to take a bunch of exams. You don't have to do that here in this field. So definitely get your hands on some data and, and make it happen. Oh, we got Ben Taylor in the house. Happy to see Ben Taylor here, man. Uh, ben, man, what's going on? Uh, so we got another question coming in. 
from LinkedIn here. Uh, have you ever done energy analysis related projects? If yes, can you explain? Um, so I've never done energy analysis related projects, but I know there's a really, really good um, a blog post. I think the guy's name is like Will Korshen um, or something like that. K-O-E-R-S-H-N. I could be pronounced that wrong, but he does this energy star uh, like really well thought out project from start to finish and highlights his entire thought process in, in a series of like four blog posts. Um, so definitely check that out. I'll see if I could link it in a little bit there and I'll drop that right there into the uh, chat for you, Ajay. Um, and yeah, the name of the books that we're talking about was uh, um, uh, Hands-On Machine Learning with Scikit-Learn and TensorFlow and Introduction to Machine Learning with Python. Uh, ben Taylor, man, what's going on? Good to see you here, man. Your audio might have some issues. It says unmuted, but I can't hear you. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> ben, I got to check out his uh, really interesting project he sent me. At um, He did this thing. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. Uh, I didn't turn on my fancy mic. Sorry about uh, that. <laughs> no worries, man. Yeah, I, I logged into LinkedIn today. I saw your, uh, uh, you sent me that message about that really cool project you did, man. I'm excited to check that out. Um, he did this thing where if he doesn't get up and work out, this this AI system will like create this weird sound in all of his Zoom meetings or something like that. What, what was that that uh, project about? So, so I built out. So I've, I've got a camera running and it's looking at a sixteen frame buffer, and then it sends like a temporal representation to an AI system that it can tell if I'm doing push ups, sit ups, pull ups, taking a break from work, working, or if I'm missing from my office. And so if it doesn't detect workouts on the daily cadence that I'm expected to, then it, it plays um, noises in the background during my Zoom calls, noises that I don't want to be played. So yeah, I need to get something like that for me, man. Like, I've got this thing where like I'll have reminders come up every, you know, periodically during the day and it'll be, you know, get up and do some push-ups or get up and do some jumping jacks, just get up and do something. And it's just so easy to just be like, Mark. Exactly. That, that's why I like the idea of having a, a consequence that I I can't ignore because I I have meetings where if some if you know if if these farting noises are playing in the background on some of these meetings, they that could be really bad for me. Like that could yeah. it's actually not funny. Yeah. And so yeah. for me, it is funny because I'm not missing my routine anymore. But the the next project I'm starting on is I've got three young kids and they eat in the TV room and it doesn't matter how many times I tell them not to do that. And this week I was picking up Little Caesars pepperonis off of my couch and there were grease stains like underneath on my couch. And so next week is full on war against the kids with an AI system that turns off the TV if they eat in the TV room. And I'll be like, I'm so excited for this next one. And like you do some really cool, fun, interesting stuff. Like, how did you did, did you have to teach yourself how to do all this stuff? Like, I mean, because because you're 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 integrating a lot of various systems and a lot of various different things together and, and doing awesome stuff with them. Like, how did you well, how do you even start, man? I, I think it, it all starts with having a selfish idea. So if you have a selfish, passionate idea, it doesn't matter what steps are needed to get it done. You just get it done. And so for some of my, for some of the projects I've done in the past that are, are the most fun, like this, one of the, one of the ones I've had the most fun with so far was this Xbox project I did a couple of years ago where I had reinforced learning on Call of Duty on a stock Xbox. But for these projects, you just have a selfish interest and you just pursue it. And that's the most rewarding thing you get to the other side. But most of the stuff is pretty, it's not, it's pretty doable. Yeah. So when you like have like some of these interesting challenges that you're working on and like you just confronted with like, okay, a blank editor, how do you, how do you get started? Is there like a, like a research phase that happens? 
Is it looking up what other people have done and then kind of taking a look at, you know, okay, this code does this. Let me try to take some of that, adapt it to this purpose and and work with it like that. Um, I think some, it, I think it's simpler than that. Most of they always start selfish because here's the thing is if it, if you are genuinely interested in a project, like, I mean, really interested, obsessed about it, there's a really good chance other people will be. And I think the fun thing when it comes to creativity is the blank slate approach. So if I have a magic Harry Potter wand and I uncreative all of you guys, everyone has a blank slate. And then I say, who can come up with the first good idea for AI? I like this two arrow approach. So I just say in your life this week, what do you want less of? What do you want more of? And for some people they'd say, well, I hate meal planning. I want less meal planning. And I'd be like, great, let's figure out how AI could help with that. And the funny thing is, if you explore that track, we're going to get to something where people are going to think that's amazing, like how creative, but really it's all starting from what do you want less of? What do you want more of? Well, I don't want to, don't want to weed. I don't want cats to poop in my kid's sandbox anymore. Like you can quickly go down this list of like projects and most of those are AI projects. They're AI assisted. So I I like that talking about creativity. I've actually, I started reading this book uh, just a couple of days ago. I don't know if you've read it or not. Uh, I don't know if this counts as reading, but it's audible. It's called the creativity code. And oh, that by, looks uh, really neat. Yeah, it's by Marcus Du Sautoy. Uh, he's the guy that took over um, Richard Dawkins' position at the uh, uh, Oxford College. He's like the uh, the public-facing scientist type of thing. Um, so he does a lot of cool, cool talks and lectures, and he's in a bunch of BBC documentaries. Um, but I like this book so much, like I, I ordered a physical copy of it as well. It's called Art and Innovation in the Age of AI. Uh, it's super, super interesting book. Um, really enjoying that so far. Um, I see Christoph has a question, so let's go to Christoph's question, and then I'm going to keep an eye out on all the chats here. I see a bunch of stuff coming in on LinkedIn, so I'm going to catch up with that real quick. Uh, shout out to Russell, Russell Willis. Uh, I'll give you a link. You can come into the room, man. Uh, but Christoph, go for it. Okay, uh, so I've got this kind of question. Um, how do you define hard work and smart work? Because I, I see a lot of such um, polls on LinkedIn and other places and people say you have to work smart and working hard is for, I, I'd say losers, but it's <laughs> like different names. And how do you define them and how do you tell the difference? That's a good question, man. I like that a lot. Ben, do you want to take a first stab at this one? Yeah, sure. So hard work and smart work. I haven't heard it framed that way. I like it because it's kind of a different way to set that problem up. It reminds me of this idea of urgency versus strategic thinking. And so smart work, strategic thinking, that would be you pondering in your office for two hours, not saying you have to do it this long, thinking really hard about some of the issues you could run into. You're, you're planning a lot better. Urgency, you just, you're thrown into the fire. You have to make this work and you need a balance of the two. And so if someone said they only did hard work, I might my default reaction might be, okay, so you're constantly chasing fires and it's urgency. And if someone said they only did smart work, I think, so you're a strategic thinker that doesn't actually get stuff done. You're like, you know, the the academic on the hilltop. And so um, you, you kind of need a balance. And I, I think the, the last thought I have before I'll shut up is, I think with hard work, sometimes with every project, you run into unexpected hurdles. And that for me, that is the hard work. You're doing a project, you want this to happen. And then here comes this brick wall. No one, you couldn't plan on it. It's now in front of you. And I've spent hours, I've spent like four hours working through a bug. I've, I've taken a break, taken a 15 minute nap and I've solved that bug in two minutes. And <laughs> same brain, four hour bug versus five minutes. One was hard. The other was just, yeah. So yeah, curious what people's reaction is. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Austin, do you have any uh, comments or insights on this? Working uh, hard versus working smart. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, lots of. 
Lots of thoughts. I mean, one example I have comes from my um, time at Comet. Um, sort of, I think this is one of the things I've been able to bring to Comet is like, and I think I've mentioned this maybe before, but I think um, sometimes the hard work, I'll use this example. Like um, when I came to Comet on the marketing side, there was not a planned out strategy. There was not really like as much of a deep sense of like how this was going to work over the long term. Um, so when I got here, I felt like we were doing this li very limited resource team was doing about 10 to 12 things at like 20%. And they were working very hard to get all of these things aligned and scheduled and done. Um, but then there was this follow through that wasn't happening with any of them. So all this hard work was going sort of almost to waste or it was it was showing, it was presenting as like experiments, uh, marketing experiments or content experiments that don't work. And then the reality was because there was all this hard work that wasn't followed up by sort of the smart strategic thinking like you were talking about, Ben. So like what I've been trying to do is like, we're going to do three, two or three things, four things at 80 to 90%. So it's that. And a lot of times what that is, is the hard work is maybe, you know, 80%, you're in the grind, you're, you're figuring out solving tough problems. And then the smart work is that extra 20% or, or you even flip that around, right? Like depending on what project you're working on, where those proportions represent some smart work and hard work where if you do much more strategic thinking up front, that last 20% of the, the hard work is much easier, if that makes sense. So if you have a good strategic plan in place and you do that sort of smart work up front, then the hard work is you're executing a, a plan that you kind of know where it's headed. Um, hard work, when you when you feel just like lost and you don't know what you're doing, I feel like that could be counterproductive um, because you're just spinning your wheels on a problem that you haven't even thought deeply enough about or intelligently enough to like figure out what the hard work is that you need to do. So it's like one becomes the, the thing that precedes the other a lot in a lot of cases. Um, but yeah, I know I have a lot of feelings about that, and especially in it's tough in in tech, you know, in tech especially when I think there's this like sort of high growth mentality, you know, like rapid growth mentality. And it's sort of like those wires can get crossed very easily around like, and we just got to do stuff. There's this bias towards action, which I think can be valuable, but I think it also be very, um, very counterproductive as well. Um, so I think it's especially difficult in tech when everything's like, go, 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 grow, grow, grow. Uh, all the incentives are pointing in that direction. It can be hard to like convince yourself that like that slow strategic thinking is actually pushing you further along than sort of like the, I'm just going to keep, keep going at this, even though I don't really know what I'm doing. Oh, really, really good, good insights there. Asha, you got some great insights here in the chat. Uh, go for it. Uh, I mean, the same thing as Austin said, I think working smart involves more planning. You realize it will take less time to get to get it done. And working hard is just more like brute force. Try, fail, try, fail, keep going, keep going. So definitely the difference is in the planning for me. <clears throat> Sorry. So I, I posted a couple of links right here into the chat. I think it's uh, no big secret that I'm a huge Naval Rabikanth fanboy. Uh, his you know philosophy is uh, something that resonates really deeply with me and he's got a couple of posts there one of the posts is from his podcast and it's just talking about hard work and from there that's where i got this uh this quote from which is hard work is no substitute for who you work with and what you work on and i think that is incredibly important because he talks about hard work being i mean he talks about success being a three-legged stool and that three-legged stool is working hard who you work with what you work on right but just working hard by itself is no substitute for the other two. Um, so that's, that really just hit me like, oh shit, man. And that's what kind of made me realize like, you know, at the previous job, like I was working hard, you know, at a price, but like who I was working with and what I was working on wasn't going to make me as successful. It wasn't going to lead me to do anything awesome or interesting. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, no, no discredit to those folks. They're great. They're great people, but um, we're just working on data management stuff. And it's like, dude, I'm a data scientist type of guy. Like, it's not what I'm wanting to do, but uh, uh, 
I'll turn it over to Ben, then I'll, I'll add some more uh, color commentary behind that. I, I just had a quick uh, thought that came up tied yeah. to this question. So I think in engineering, I'll throw data science into this pool as well. There, you, we can all think of examples where we've celebrated heroics, right? Like, oh my gosh, did you hear about that engineer? Like 48 hours later, hackathon, or even like core product. Like I've had, I've seen this happen at HireVue. And some people get, some people like this. It's like an adrenaline high. They're like, yes, I know, heroics. Heroics are awesome sometimes. If there's a history of like necessary heroics, it's usually in, it's an indicator of a bigger problem. It's an indicator of technical debt and heroics don't scale and a heroics are typically filled with junk code and shortcuts that don't, they, they're not self-sustained. They can't be handed off well and integrated. So when I think of hard work, I think of, but at the same time, we still want heroics, right? Like I still want people on my team that if shit hits the fan, I want you to figure it out. I want you to do heroics, but if you have to do heroics every week, that's toxic. So yeah, super interesting. I, I had forgotten about that. The heroics are okay, but heroics are also um, common, like repeated heroics are a sign of a bigger issue. Yeah, it's like it's like figuring out this sort of balance between pro. I was actually just talking about this this morning um, with my girlfriend. I was just thinking about some work stuff and it's figuring out, to me, it's really figuring out this, this balance between process versus outcome. Like the outcomes are the thing that give those dopamine rushes, that give that adrenaline, that give you that energy. But then process is what makes those things repeatable and scalable. And so how do you balance that in a high growth environment or in an environment where you feel pressured to like acquire new skills or, or whatever it is you're going through? It's like, you really have to, um, like I'm struggling with this with like, you know, this idea of KPIs and like, oh, I got to hit my numbers. I got to hit my KPIs. But underneath that is like, if I, I feel like if I execute the process, well, that outcome will come, but I don't get that adrenaline rush of seeing the big spike in growth that day or whatever. It's like this steady long-term thing I'm working on. And so balancing that can be really difficult um, and I think that plays into it a lot. It's like, I don't want to get addicted to that adrenaline rush of like just doing a thing and then it having some result and then, but not really seeing how that ties into this bigger picture of, especially for me, like building community, building a sustainable, positive reciprocal community is, is not about one-off successes. It's about tying those one-off successes to a process, to a way of celebrating folks in the community, to all of these things that go under, that kind of go unseen underneath that. And I just have to like be okay with that. And that's like a very difficult mental thing for me because so much of the, so much of our sort of incentives feel very outcome-based. And, and I like my whole thing is to try to like figure out how to balance that better in my mind. Yeah. I got to give you this recommendation. So this is a book I've read a couple of times this summer already, uh, The Practicing Mind. It's short. It's like maybe a hundred pages, if that, hundred ten pages. A quick, like one hour listen or two hour listen on double speed on uh, Audible. Uh, but it's all about that entire thing. Worry about the process. Execute on the process. Uh, let go of the the outcome. Um, very rooted in like a Taoist philosophy and you know, a little bit of Stoic philosophy there. But he here's the thing for me, man. Like like working smart to me is working on those type of things that are you are uniquely suited to doing that your return on investment is going to be high leverage right um so for example i could spend 1 hour pulling weeds outside right but is that a good use of my time am i working hard yeah i'll be sweating i'll be in the sun i'll be toiling it'll be hard work that's not smart work because that 1 hour of time is better used for me personally if i you know spend an hour reading this book, right? If I spend an hour writing something, if I spend an hour uh, doing this, right? Tasks that I'm uniquely suited to do where that my return on time investments is just going to have an outsized impact. That's what I think working smart is. Working hard is doing things that you're just 
um, probably not as well suited to or just it's not a good use of, of, of your time. That's kind of how I think about it in my mind. Awesome. Um, yeah, let's keep continue going on. Great question, Christoph. Uh, I really like that. There's um, a bunch of questions coming in from uh, LinkedIn and on uh, YouTube as well as right here in the chat. We'll take um, we'll take some questions right here from the chat first, and then we'll go on to uh, YouTube and LinkedIn. Uh, Bharat has a um, question here. Bharat, I could ask on your behalf. I think sometimes you have uh, audio issues, but if today is not one of those days, feel free to jump in. But um, go for it. Uh, hi everyone. Oh, you're sounding good today. Go for it. <laughs> What's your question? Yeah. So. Uh, this is for me and a few friends of mine. We all kind of have this question. How do we decide between uh, which role to pursue? Like we might be in an analysis paralysis kind of situation between deciding between data scientist versus machine learning engineer role. So my expectations are that uh, if I take a step back, I just want to have more impact and more exploratory role and i realize both of these could fulfill those boxes so which one to pursue and which one is easier if we are coming from software engineer backgrounds like which if we are looking for a direct transition sort of i would say like probably i mean just to answer that last question which is easier transition coming from software engineer background I would think like machine learning engineer, or data engineer type of role would probably be easier to transition into just because that is just such a heavy, heavy software development uh, type of role. Um, but Ben, do you want to take on his first half of that question or both halves? Yeah, my my short answer to the first half is I think a huge part of that decision is going to play into your employer. Because I, I could imagine two different employers where one, the data science role, you're doing, you're, you're not being challenged, you're not innovating, you're not becoming your best self, where another company or another startup, you would be really challenged. And so um, maybe I'd kind of take a step back. So rather than deciding on one versus the other, I, I think for me, I enjoy data science a lot more because you're coming up with new applications, you're inventing new algorithms and new processes to, to try out, but your employer will be a huge, huge part of that on whether or not that feeds your soul and makes you your best version of yourself or if that stifles your creativity. You, you want to get a job where you're the dumbest person in the room. You don't want to be in a job where you're the smartest person in the room because then who's going to teach you? How are you going to learn? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, anybody else have any insights or comments there? Um, I think Ben did a great job answering that question. Uh, I mean, to me, it's like, how do you decide between machine learning engineer versus data scientist? It's like, what do you like doing better, right? So if you like writing code and, uh, I mean, you're going to write code in both scenarios, but if you like actually engineering the stuff, right? Writing, getting stuff deployed to production and doing all that, I would say do the engineering type of role. If you like the exploration, the research, uh, you know, connecting business value to to the work that you're doing, then maybe think about the data scientist role. Um, Sunita, do you have any comments or anything or questions? No. Uh, Christoph, go for it. Um, I'd like just to say, um, I think you should follow your your curiosity. I mean, to yeah, you know yourself the best. No one knows you as you do, and just look where you. I'd say lose track of the time. I mean, when you do some projects, some exercises, anything, um, uh, either data science or data engineering, just uh, where you lose your uh, the track uh, track of time, um, it means that you really like it and you really enjoy it. And I think you sh you should just follow it if you're starting. Yeah. You and I have the same question: what to choose, data science or machine learning? 
because because um, uh, we know we have learned uh, algorithms in our uh, academics but not uh, done any algorithm in our academy and uh, we have done lot of uh, data analysis and all so what if we are given a task of uh, machine learning algorithm to implement that can we be able to do that that is a question that i have uh, i'm sure i fully understand the question but i would probably say yes because i think as a data scientist you still need to be able to code obviously you need to be able to write good production ready code um but i i like the the delineation in my mind between data scientist and machine learning engineer is that machine learning engineer is going to be more heavily focused on the engineering of it taking this model and plugging it into somewhere where the data can come in go through whatever transformations need to happen get past the actual model spit out the result and make sure that that model is scalable it's you know not going to break it's engineered properly right that is deployed and uh, and just do its thing with minimal input uh, ben what do you think i i i like i like what you were saying uh, because it was the question about whether or not you can do something, it really comes back to your passions, right? Because look at, like, I think if you look at myself or other people, I never took computer science in college, but I've been invited to present to like Red Bull, Goldman Sachs and SpaceX when it comes to like AI, but I, I never studied it. And so what that tells you is if your passions align, can you do it? Absolutely. Can you invent this next algorithm? Can you do it? Totally. No, no hesitation. You can do it. But you need, so instead of asking what's the right decision, you need to kind of look internally and decide which of these excites that passion. So if you see yourself being drawn a certain way, then lean that way. And if your passion aligns with the work you're doing, you will become an expert, you will become a leader. And whether or not you can do it is, is no longer an issue, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because I, yeah. I, didn't, I, I didn't study computer science like at all. But I mean, I was able to learn it because I found it fun and interesting and I enjoyed it. So what did I do? I picked up grokking algorithms and I picked up some other introduction algorithms books and I just wrapped my head around it. I'm like, oh, I get it. I didn't really write code like like the way I write it now um, up until, you know, like three or four years ago. And then just started getting good at it because I kept doing it, kept practicing, it, kept enjoying it, kept liking it. It didn't feel like hard work. It felt like fun work. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's always going to come back to what it is that you enjoy doing more, right? Um that's what I would say. And plus data science itself, like the, the data scientist job title, there's, we were talking about this on Friday. We opened up the session on Friday with the question of what type of data scientist are you not? Uh, so definitely go back and listen to Friday's happy hour session and you'll have a good hour of just everyone talking about the type of data scientist that they are not, the type of work that they don't like doing as data scientists. So they decided to focus on uh, wh why they decided to focus on what it is that they focused on. So extremely recommend going back and listening to, to that one um it, it's you get some good insight from people like for example me like i'm not like a product analytics data scientist like i don't enjoy product analytics it's just not fun for me um but i like love doing research i love communicating i love you know doing this type of stuff um and i like, like i love machine learning so that's the type of data scientist i am the ones that's focused more on research and on discovery and on exploration and then communicating findings and, and things like that um, couple of great comments here coming in from the uh, from the chat. I'm just going to read them out real quick. Shout out to Russell Willis in the house. Uh, Auntie had a great uh, uh, response here to that hard work question. Uh, working hard usually precedes working smart. It's easier to just start doing stuff, even if it's messy, than at some point 
when I started to repeat the same stuff manually, then I switched to smart work to avoid having to work hard anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense because like there's uh, this thing that I've read many times and it says that people who become experts in a field start to think less about the work that they're doing. Uh, whereas if you're a beginner, there's a lot of like mental activity happening and it's, it's easy to get trapped up and, and tripped up rather um, in little mistakes. Uh, whereas somebody who's done this a lot more has to think about a lot less um, interesting neuroscience kind of finding. Um, and then I want to comment yeah. on something, if, if that's okay. Yeah, um, ben, Ben, you just posted this thing in the chat, which I really like. It's like your passion can take you into new made up positions. You can invent a role outside of your typical data sciences. Like I, a couple of things on that is I, I find myself, I'm not a data scientist, but I think that lends itself to be true because I've sort of married like this strange love of writing and communication and teaching and counseling and all these things into this like I, you know, I've been a head of community for in the tech industry for like five, four or five years now or whatever it is. And that was something that wasn't, it didn't exist, you know, years ago. So I'm sort of like at the beginning of this. And then I think about, you were talking about you joining Comet Harpreet and not to dwell on that, but like sort of that's what we did. We sort of just like, what are your skill sets? And we made up a role, like we knew kind of what we wanted. And then we just like mapped it onto the things that you're very passionate about because we knew that that would be a thing that would connect to our community. And it's like, we have, now we have you coming into this like unique role that's going to allow you to, you know, theoretically and hopefully express all of those things in your work. And I think like the reason why, you know, I sought you out for that role specifically was because I saw that passion. And like, I think the good, like hopefully, you know, good hiring managers and, and good companies and smart people will want to attract that kind of talent and like create those jobs for you, because this is also nascent. It's still also new. Like we, we act like we know all this stuff about it, but like, you think it's like less than a decade, you know, like some of these key positions are like less than a decade old. Like there's plenty of room to chart a new path. Um, and you just kind of have to, yeah, like really follow that curiosity. I think going back to what Chris was saying. So I just like, I've seen that actually play out in my own life. And then in sort of the positions I'm just like creating out of thin air, like at comment in my first, like, you know, few months here. It's like, it's really cool to see. And it, it gets me excited about sort of being in this role to facilitate that and watch someone carry out their, watch multiple people and carry out their passions and, and try something new and, and different. And um, so I think that's really good advice. Um, that's really good advice. Yeah. And when you, when you start to do that, when you start to follow your interests and your curiosity and your passions, you start just doing interesting stuff, you become something really important. And that is the type of person that you can't go to school to become, right? Like you become somebody that, you know, I can't get a certificate and become like Ben Taylor. I can't go to school and become like, you know, Harvey Sohota. Like that just doesn't happen because I, you know, we each follow our own unique interests, unique curiosity. And then what happens is you're able to find opportunities that are well suited to that. Um, whereas if you're just kind of stuck on that, I want to be a data scientist. Great. But what type of data scientist do you want to be? What are you interested in? Focus on that. Uh, ben, go for it. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of like a blank page write your dream job, like what you want to do. And I think people don't realize how crazy it can become. So like, I feel very blessed to be where I am now, but like I, we're going to go on a backpacking fishing trip with like AI partners and we're going to be bring a film crew. They're like, well, what the hell does that have to do with AI? And it's like, well, we'll, you know, we're going to build out an AI system to predict if we're going to catch a fish or like, like these types of projects, they don't feel like work. But if you like sales, like I really like sales. I like meeting with really smart people over dinner. And for me, that's been a total joy in my career to meet people all over the world and have talked about whatever we talked about over dinner, um, whether it's the singularity, religion, whatever the hell we're going to talk about. And so that's become a big part of my job. Like I just have dinner with fascinating people and 
So yeah, yeah. There, there's no knowledge. Yeah, and I would argue, like, if anything, the the roles that kind of feel more generalized, avoid those roles or avoid those companies. Like, try to find a role where they're trying to mash data science onto marketing, or they're trying to like mash machine learning engineering into something else. Where you know, oh no, if I go join this company, I'm going to have to be scratching my head and hit my head on two different walls to figure stuff out. And that's why I'm a big fan of startups because you have to wear like multiple hats, which means you don't know anything, <laughs> but it means you have to know something quickly. But sometimes these bigger companies, you can just kind of, they stifle creativity, not because they try to, but it's just the reality of red tape. When I was at Micron, I need, I wanted a faster uh, laptop for data science. And they said, every engineer gets the same $600 laptop and it needed like three levels of management to approve me getting a nicer laptop. But yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, been there, done that. <laughs> I, know, I know those struggles and uh, something that Ben was talking about there. It's, it's another, again, like, like I said, I'm, I'm a Navala Begonth fanboy. Like you will never have one office hour where I don't reference him. Uh, but he talks about specific knowledge, right? Feels like play to me, but looks like work to others, specific knowledge. Um, that's really interesting, unique concept. Um, yeah, so definitely check out that that quick post here that I that I sent, or you can listen to it. It's a quick six minutes. Um, all right, let's great discussion so far. Uh, I forgot who kicked that off, but damn, that was that was good. Um, let's continue moving on. I got a question coming in from YouTube um, from Mohammed. He's asking, "What is a good time to start reading research papers?" If I started machine learning a few months ago, will reading research now confuse me during that stage? Uh, probably. Yeah, I think that would probably be not a good idea unless you are um, really interested in it. Uh, ben, what are your thoughts on that? I Yeah, I discourage that because I think sometimes with these white papers that are not well written, they're very intimidating. And even for people that like math, sometimes they're so heavy on tech that you're cross-eyed looking at this paper. And so some people get discouraged. They'll start reading these white papers in AI, trying to understand them. And so I'm a much bigger fan in understanding the concept at a high level. You know, go watch YouTube, watch, understand why you would use a particular algorithm and then study white papers if they hit your passion project or if they hit crap we're having an issue we're trying to do this first thing in technology there's probably some white papers i would never recommend using white papers for a foundation in ai and data science you'll just feel discouraged yeah absolutely agree just spend some time mastering the fundamentals the basics and then do research papers when when you have a problem that you haven't encountered that you think somebody else might have done something similar to this uh, and you find out that they have through a research paper. That's kind of how I've come come to that. But then, I mean, that being said, like, I mean, when it comes to research papers, like I've got a stack right here that I'm really excited to read through. Um, most of mine are, are old that I'm reading. So one of is, is the unreasonable effectiveness of deep learning in AI. Uh, there's the tutorial introduction to decision theory. That's a good one. Uh, the unreasonable effectiveness of data, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. I'm um, just into unreasonable effectiveness. That's just something that, that I find fascinating. Uh, but yeah, hopefully that um, that clarifies that for you, Mohammed. I 100% agree. Um, just wait it out a little bit. Shout out to Russell Willis. Good to see you, man. Um, there's a question coming in from LinkedIn here from uh, Christine Seagrave. I think a lot of people forget that data science is less than a decade old. Do you think that enough time has passed for norm normative procedures to develop in this field. Um, enough time passed for normative procedures to develop in this field. I'm not sure what normative procedures mean. Does that mean like a, a standardized like workflow or uh, if anybody has any insight on that, yeah, uh, Asha, go for it. Oh, I see your No, hand. I don't have insight on that. I just have a different question. Oh, Let okay. Play first. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, 
wrestle or bend? I don't like what does normative I, procedures mean? I might have a quick response to this. So my 20 second yeah. response is if you look at deep learning specifically, it is so sharded out, right? You have like TensorFlow, PyTorch, all these different academic. And then like you bring up like cafe, like, oh yeah, people used to fight cafe will never go away. It's dead now. And what that tells you is we're really scattered. There should be one deep learning library that NVIDIA is backing that we've all agreed to, but there's not yet. So I think there's still a lot of scattered efforts, still a lot of technical debt from a humanity perspective, but I feel like that's slowly being cleaned up. Um, might take another five or 10 years before we have like the one or two, like, and that's just specific deep learning, right? Then you have the R versus Python debate, but we don't need to bring that up here. No, John Crone was igniting the uh, PyTorch versus TensorFlow debate uh, last week. I've been mostly learning PyTorch, but John's book is all in uh, Keras and TensorFlow, so that's been interesting as well. But I don't know, normative procedures, like if somebody can help define that for me, I'd really appreciate that. If if by now, like, yeah, go for yeah, it. Yeah, I have an idea. I think, yeah. you know, one of the things, and this is, maybe this is, I'm a little biased because I've started working at Comet. I'm starting to see all these issues arise. Is one of the things is sort of this mentality switch from um, treating machine learning and data science teams as traditional engineering teams to more like their own sort of specialized units where they need, you know, sort of this, this large scale, like ML ops thing that's developing and right. And like, um, there's still a lot to learn and find out about it, but, you know, if I take Comet, for example, what we do is in sort of the experiment management space is like trying to make t ML teams, you know, able to see the work each other's doing, like move away from like logging, putting output logs in spreadsheets and move it to a centralized system of record in the same way that like, you know, GitHub was trying to do where, you know, you're, you're putting all your software engineering practices and operationalizing it inside of a repository. It's the same ideas, but, but there's just like a whole different set of processes. So there's this phase where you have to define what those processes are. Then you have to <laughs> split out like, okay, well, how do different roles fit into those processes? How do we build effective teams? How do we build effective systems that do that? So that's still very much in its early days. I mean, we've been talking about this stuff for five years or less. So it's not like it's had decades to figure this out. But that's one thing I see as well. In addition to the tooling around the libraries and things like that, I think is actually around how you think about structuring teams within an organization that it's not just one data scientist just playing around in, in notebooks, but it's actually you know full teams that have their own distinct processes and tooling and, and the ecosystems that they live in and sort of exist in and how they then they connect those to other parts of a business because that's that's one of the hardest parts is how do you connect this is the thing we get a lot about is like how to as a data scientist how do you communicate the value of what you do and things like that and i think that's a huge part of that it's like in that ops space the operationalizing it um that to me feels like where this is all sort of headed is like figuring out what that actually means and looks like in terms of the life cycle of model development and deployment and retraining and all these kinds of things that we talk about yeah, i like that a lot that that really clarified for me as well i think that does answer your question there christine that's a uh, very good comprehensive answer there. Thank you very much, uh, Austin. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess the normative procedures are this entire thing of this ML ops and, and not only version controlling code, version controlling data sets, version controlling models, um, and just having that full life cycle. Uh, Christine, let us know in, in the uh, comments in LinkedIn if, uh, if you have any follow-ups or anything. Um, happy to get to that. Uh, Asha, go for it. Um, so my question was the way, especially the way Ben, you've said, you start on new projects every single time. You just take on the challenge. What's the process you go through when starting a new project? Because sometimes you can just copy-paste some code and it'll work. You have no idea why. It worked. It got the job done. You can't explain why. Do you? And also with the research, that leads sometimes to a rabbit hole. You read, 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 try to figure out research. But by the time you get to doing the actual project, you feel like time is nearly up. What's the process for you? All of you. Um. 
So the with projects, there's normally a lot that are in flight. And the nice thing is they carry on a life of their own. So normally the projects I work on now, they involve partners. So they they actually involve like legal agreements and other companies. And sometimes they die on the vine and other times they come alive. And I've got a project right now. It's pretty ambitious. It involves a professional athlete and like an off-road vehicle. And we've gone through legal agreements between three companies, but we're stuck on the third company right now with their lawyers. And that project may never start. And it's nothing. It's actually outside of my control, but it might. If it starts, that'll be fun. We'll jump into it. So with projects, I like them to sometimes it's just an idea stuck in my head, sometimes for a couple of years. And that idea will just kind of fester and, and grow or, th- or things will be bolted on the idea. It'll evolve. And sometimes it'll evolve enough that the seed will escape and it'll actually become reality. Um, and then when it comes becomes reality, there's there can be a lot of chaos with some of these projects where there's no template. How the hell are we going to do this? Timelines. I'm I'm kind of a fan of pr- procrastination. So you ha- you have this you have these two tensions. So one of them is with procrastination, things magically get done in time, but that's not always a good thing because you you can suffer on quality, et cetera. The other thing that's top of mind is perfect is the enemy of good. And so for that little project I just shared about like AI fitness coach, I figured out out of the gate how to get it. Um, the GoPro to stream HDR10, which which is 16-bit video. And from like a nerd perspective, I'd rather have 65,000 unique values per pixel than 255. That's an example of perfect is the enemy of good because I actually invested more time to make that work. But for the project, it was not necessary. So that's something I'm constantly trying to catch myself with. Am I falling prey to geek fantasies or techno like these technophile efforts that aren't required for done? Um, but that's just kind of the constant dance that will always exist, that I will always get myself in trouble, but I will always try to get myself into bigger projects that intimidate me. Uh, so I've got a project in Q4 that definitely intimidates me, um, but it's all, but th- that's the thing. You you win on smaller projects and you, and you hunt for bigger projects. And hopefully you find yourself in a scenario where you're thinking there is no way I can make this project work. And if you can live in that reality, you will have a very exciting reality. So that's awesome, man. Yeah, I like that idea of that or that that thing you're talking about rather where just the idea just pops up in your head and begins to fester and take over your entire mind and then all of a sudden just happens. That's well, exactly what happened to me with this podcast. Well, maybe not to belabor the point, but it also relates to startups. So some people say, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to go to a startup. And I like to say, oh, what do you want to do? They'll tell me and they'll say, are you willing to foreclose on your home and burn through all of your 401k savings immediately to achieve this goal? And most people say no. And then I'd say, well, you haven't found the right project. You haven't found the right company. And so to really find the right projects, I would argue your passions are so fired up about this project that you are willing to, you don't need to risk the ultimate outcome like a startup does, but you would, you're willing to risk something. You're willing to risk your reputation. You're willing to risk the weekend. You're maybe even willing to risk your job. Like for some projects to get big enough, you're willing to risk your job. And those are the best projects of all. It's almost like it's uh, the, the type of thing that you, uh, how do I say that you can't, you can't not do, right? Like, like it would be an injustice to yourself if you like did not do this particular thing. Uh, I see a good question coming in from Russell. Follow-up question. Uh, Russell, go for it. I think Russell might have froze up. Um, did you freeze up? Still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, so you had a follow-up question for Ben. Go for it. Yeah. So when you're talking about the uh, perfection being the enemy of uh, good enough there, Ben, um, have you ever tried to to have like a tandem path so you're developing both at the same time? So you can get, you could have gone on with your uh, less than HDR10 standard and had that thing working in the in the, in one stream, whilst you then try to set up another going for the uh, the higher quality output that you're looking for. 
Yeah, I think the, the smart way to do it is to quickly admit a two-phase approach like version one and two. So rather than me wasting time on HDR10, I should have quickly said, I think that's possible, maybe like sub-hour validation, and then just shelf it. Don't worry about it. Go to version one with the mindset that there will be a version two. Version two, I will invest time to improve based on lessons from version one. But honestly, the reality is you never come back to version two. But just but just kind of telling yourself that there is a version two because you're usually on to the next project or you're on to the next customer. There's something else. Um, but if it's a if it's valuable enough, then version two is going to come marching off the shelf and become a reality. So that that's been helpful for me is to admit that there is a version two. But sometimes you. Uh, a lot of the stuff I say, it's advice to myself, right? Like, I'm not saying, like, I still screwed that up on this last project. I still wasted too many hours getting the first one to work rather than just quickly admitting, I see room for version two, pop it over with plans to work on it in the future and just avoid it for now. Yeah, we're always learning, but I, yeah. it's hard to do things in parallel. I like the idea, just, idea of just like carving it off. The, there, the other thing that's I'm starting to realize more with some of these creative projects, there's reasons to do them several times. So actually redoing version one rather than if there's a version two that's really technical, there might be reasons to do version one a few times. And that's because you have maybe you want to shoot the video a couple of times. Like there's there's a whole creative element that's outside of data science. How do you want to tell the story? And sometimes you don't know how to tell the story until you've seen it told once. And then you want to go retell it or reshoot it a different way. Awesome, man. That was that. I'm going to have to come back and listen to that one. All right. Nikesh, if you're listening, um, make sure you clip out some of that uh, that one previous one so we can make a soundbite out of that. Um, thank you very much for that. If anybody else has questions, let me know. Um, I'm looking at the chats here. No other questions in any chat. Uh, I've got oh, one. Yeah, um, go for it. One of the things that Ben, some of your comments earlier about like your sort of selfish projects and, and sort of uh, the cool different ways that can create these divergent ideas sort of made me think of like, and I've been working with this tool um, and you were kind of talking about Harpreet about like doing transcripts and cleaning things up and creating a data set there. I've been using this tool called Descript, uh, if anyone's familiar with. It's like an like a auto transcription tool, it's pretty good. Like there's a lot of, it's, it's, a, it's a really good um, product that uses machine learning. So I'd be curious to know like what products or what products that use machine learning that folks have encountered that they really like and sort of why, um, just in the sense of making this like more tangible, because I think a lot of what we talk about is like creating business value through like fraud detection. But I think there's this other space for like creating cool products that like detect if your kids are eating pizza on the couch while the TV's on or, or doing these things. Are there, are there things that you guys have seen or, or worked with or tools or anything like that, that you guys like that use machine learning well? So just to follow up on, on, on that point, uh, since we're talking about transcriptions, I, I use sonic.ai uh, and S-O-N-I-X, sonics.ai, and they've been really good um, and very helpful. I just find that fascinating. But yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, what are some things out there that you guys have enjoyed, some products out there that you've enjoyed uh, that use machine learning or, or AI in general? Um, and do you have any, uh, top, anything that's on top of mind? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll turn this into an NVIDIA commercial and I'll plug the <laughs> NVIDIA Nano is the cutest little computer. I think it's like $60 and it finally runs Ubuntu. Anyone on the call, if you've played with like the TX1, TX2 chips, I hated them with a passion. They were a nightmare. You waste way too much time setting up. And so find reasons to play with that and you will find yourself doing some really, really fun, wacky projects. And you'll stand, it'll stand out on your resume because everyone's resumes look the same. And if you can add unique projects to you where you're selfishly interested, I don't like fantasy football, but if you were selfishly interested in that and you did a project around that, I would celebrate it. I would see that as novelty and passion. And so be very self-motivated. Uh, I actually had, uh, we had Hannah Fry on our podcast and I asked her this question. I said, like, why do you, how do you come up with these creative ideas? Like she does the coolest things, like the mathematics of love. She's written all these books. 
And I kind of was teasing out, like, almost like, did she plan these things? And her response essentially was like, no, like they're selfishly interesting to me. And kind of that same approach, like find projects selfishly interesting. Check out that little Nano, NVIDIA Nano. It's the cutest computer you've ever seen with a GPU, $60. It'll do all sorts of things. Definitely going to be picking that up at the Jetson Nano, NVIDIA Jetson Nano. Yeah. Yes. So many fun accessories. You, you can make your house come to life with some of those projects. Nice. Yeah, definitely check that out. Um, yeah, any other products that you guys use out there, man? Like, I'm at a loss. Um, I guess I just don't use that many products, do I? <laughs> not, not to over, not to speak too much on this on this question, but the uh, one of the things I like is don't predict the future, build it. And so, if you have things you don't like, like right now we're starting season two of our podcast, we are definitely going to include AI somehow in season two. We do use Descript, Austin, but there are different things with editing that are a time suck. We don't want to do them. And so, can we pull AI in? Why are we doing this? Because we're building the future that we want so we can produce podcast episodes twice as fast, but that technology doesn't exist the way we need it. And so, everyone get even more selfish. It's Selfish Sunday. Don't anticipate the future that's coming. Just build the future you want and think of where you need augmentation. I see some uh, good feedback here from uh, somebody said Spotify recommendations. Yeah, Anti said that. Spotify. Yeah, those recommendation engines have been amazing. Dude. Spotify always uh, hooks me up with all the jams. Uh, all right. So I guess uh, somebody else had their hand up for a question. Was that Christoph or was that Asha? Asha, go for it. Christoph, go for it. Uh, Christoph had a question before we let him go, then I'll go. It was me. <laughs> okay. Um, I've got this question. Harpreet, um, you mentioned that you study luck. <laughs> uh, you said it in your podcast and I think in some office hours also. And I've been reading these two books right now, Thinking in Bets and The Psychology of Money. And the yeah. common thing they both have is, is that luck is there. I mean, if there is an outcome, there must be luck. And since you started it, oh, uh, my question is, how do you apply luck into your decision making? So you just factor for things that are not going to be in your control, right? So anytime I make a decision, I just acknowledge that there are things outside of my control and there are things that I can't know will happen. And I optimize on the things that are within my control, the things that I can influence and move the needle on those as, as much as possible, right? So that's kind of how I factor into my decision-making, right? And uh, to the point that Austin was making earlier about not being attached to that, that outcome is I kind of imagine in my head, okay, if I take these sets of actions, here's what I think the probability distribution is going to look like for potential outcomes, right? And this is, the, this is not like the frequentist approach to statistics or probability. This is just probability and in the um, subjective definition of it, right? That it is my personal belief, like, you know, kind of like a, a Bayesian reasoning type of, of way, Bayesian epistemology, um, where it's like, okay, this is my belief that these are the potential outcomes that could happen from this decision, right? So if I take this set of actions, then, you know, in a thousand parallel universes, I would imagine that 40% of them will have a positive outcome, 10% of them will have a neutral outcome, and, you know, 50% chance of having a you know, unfair outcome or unfavorable outcome. Um, I mean, that's kind of how I use it in, in my thinking, my decision-making is, okay, what can I influence? What is directly in my control? What are the things that I can personally impact, optimize for those things, those actions, those activities, consider what potential things can happen, and then assign a probability weighted distribution to each one of those kind of 
potential outcomes. And that's how I think about things. Um, so how do I account for luck in there? Um, I just realized that luck plays a factor in anything, right? There are things just beyond my control that just will happen. Um, and if they do happen, then whoa, shit, man, I can't be bad. I did everything that was in my control. So, you know, I don't know if that answered your question or was that being too roundabout? Let me know. It does. It's a great answer. Thank you. But yeah. I mean, when it comes to luck, there's like different, different types of luck, right? There's the dumb luck, blind luck, right? Things just happen, right? I can go buy a lottery ticket. And just won the lottery, whatever. Like that's just dumb luck, blind luck. Um, I was born in the United States of America as opposed to India or Fiji. That's dumb luck for me because now I've got a bunch more opportunities than other people do. Um, then there's the, the the fortune favors the bold type of luck, that hustle luck where you're just out there doing a bunch of things, kicking up dust. Things are combining, things are happening, and you're able to capitalize on on these opportunities that that are presented because of the actions that you're taking. Then there's the luck that is um type three luck which is more about becoming really really good in a field right that chance favors the prepared mind that's a cliche that goes with that we just really really understand a field so well where you can see opportunities happening that other people can't right where you see things that are developing that other people won't be able to put put together that's kind of like where, where ben's at with that right he's got that type three type of luck because he's way on the cutting edge of stuff he could see things before any of us could uh, and then there's type four luck, which is like the most unique, interesting type of luck where that's you just develop a unique brand, a unique mindset, a unique reputation where that people come to you now when they want to do something because um, you've been able to create this type of luck for yourself. And that's the type of luck you want to maximize. I, I think luck is relative too. So sometimes you can sometimes you can regret mistakes made in the past, like crap, I didn't do this job and now the IP it owed and I'm an idiot. Like. So you, you don't want to dwell on that. And, you know, when it really comes down to it, we are all lucky to be here today, breathing, able to communicate on this call. And the more you really own that, the reality, how lucky you are to just be here, the more you're willing to take risks. And so they, they've done studies to show that people that intentionally leave their jobs from their, you know, to pursue new opportunities on their own, they will make more money in their career than people that wait to be promoted within a company. And so being bold, it's hard to be bold. Like, why would you ever risk losing your job or switching jobs? What if, what if you join a new company and, <laughs> or preaches join a new company? What if you, what if it turns out you hate the culture? Like, what if like six months from now, you're like, you know, there, there are more a-holes in there than you realize. And like, there, there's always a risk, but the more you do this, the more luck, will come your way the more people you meet people in your network are a huge factor in luck when it comes to startups jobs a lot of people a lot of the most exciting positions that are offered are one-to-one -one. like hey new company come work hey new company come work hey new company hey i know you come work here absolutely man um russell i i, I like this thing you put here talking about luck as a uh luck as a fallacy perhaps go for it yeah, so I'll just stand out to it as a fallacy. If we're trying to look at it in very logical terms and say there's, you know, there's random chance that happens everywhere in the universe, you know, outside of planet Earth, um, but we we experience it directly on planet Earth. Then there's the ability to observe, and then let's say there is serendipity as well, where things just coalesce for a greater benefit than you would you would expect in uh, in normal distribution. Um, so so I I posit then that those with a more positive disposition are likely to observe more objectively and more closely to things that are going on around them. And with that random chance, they'll likely be able to find things that can provide a positive outcome to them more than someone with a negative outlook. Say someone's really angry uh, or upset about something and you know, you know, just filled with something that's consuming their, their mind, they won't be 
taking in everything around them, so they'll more likely go beyond something. So an external observer might look at them and say, well, the more uh, positive person was lucky because they found this thing and the negative person was unlucky because they didn't. Yet it may be uh, directly attributed to the way that they were um, observing at the time, you know? Yeah, I absolutely love that, dude. That's actually um, very similar to what Christian Bush talks about in his book, The Serendipity Mindset, which, uh, by the way, if you haven't read that book, go go read the book, but also listen to the podcast episode that we did together. We talk about this a lot as well, um, but very much so. Uh, just having that open mindset, the open uh, open to new possibilities is very, very helpful. There's uh, another book, I think it's called The Luck Factor by Martin something. I can't remember his name, uh, but they had this study where they had two people, uh, one who was self-described themselves as lucky, one who self-described themselves as unlucky, and they had them both go into like a coffee shop. And then on the way to the coffee shop, the same path, they had like dropped money there. So, that, you know, it, it was there. And then uh, they they set up the situation at the coffee shop in such a way where, you know, you were forced to sit down with somebody and, and or like a conversation or whatever, right? And the lucky person found the money on the ground sat down and started talking to whoever was next to them and realized that this person is like a businessman can help them, you know, launch some product or something like that. Um, whereas the unlucky person just totally stepped right over the, 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 you know, 10 pound note that was on the ground and completely shut themselves off to any new opportunities that were going to be present in the coffee shop. Um, but yeah, very, very, very great uh, comment there. Thank you, Russell. Um, so a couple of, a uh, couple of things popping up from LinkedIn chat real quick. Uh, some great comments from Christine. Christine is clarifying, um, this idea of uh, um, the, the the normative procedures that she was talking about. So I guess uh, she says that social scientists adhere to set normative procedures when conducting research to be able to publish in academic journals. Research on human subjects must meet standards in order to be considered legitimate uh, science and acceptable within a community. Norms inform what behaviors are appropriate and ethical. Norms also help us understand what procedures are useful to answer problems using a set of data. That's, yeah, I wonder if we have that in data science. The closest thing I think of is like Chris DM uh, methodology, but that's mostly for exploring data and, and things like that. Uh, but I'm going to have to digest that and uh, think about that. Um, thank you, Christine. Christine also says luck can be the serendipity factor that happens to assist a person in realizing an outcome. Luck can be a belief that a positive outcome is possible. It can be used with deductive, inductive, and inductive reasoning. All beliefs are fallible. We need to address how the result uh, might be fallible due to bias and threat validity. Yes, all beliefs are fallible. Listen to the episode I did with uh, Dave Gray. We talk all about beliefs. Um, uh, ben, you, I, I like this comment you're, you're typing out right here, man, if you wouldn't mind uh, verbalizing it for uh, for the audience listening. Yeah, I, I was leaving Intel and Micron, and this is when data science was really hot, like it was the new thing in the market. And I had three job offers, and I changed my mind every single day. And, and you're trying to make decisions based on, you have to be very careful who's giving you advice, and not to be too negative, but your parents are coming from a very different mindset. They're going to be more focused on conservative, maximum cash, stuff like that. And I had these three job offers. I had no idea which one I was going to go with. And luckily, I talked to someone who'd worked at both these companies at two two of the three. And he said not to join his ex-employers. I joined HireVue. A year later, the first two completely failed and HireVue ended up being a big success. But there was no way to know that. And so that, that's why the networking comments there that get advice from as many people as you can, but be be very aware of their bias. So if you're reaching out to your parents for advice, know that they will have a bias. If you're reaching out to others in the community, they might have a bias. Um, but yeah, it, that reminds me of luck because like 
I got very lucky. It could have gone the other way. And yeah, I, I don't know. Is that luck? I, I think it's luck. Yeah. I mean, it, absolutely. I mean, you kind of created your luck in, in a sense, right? By taking some action and, and doing things, right? You're influencing your luck by taking actions. Uh, great, great conversation over the last uh, last few minutes there. And yeah, having a good network is important. I think I underestimated the uh, power of a network until very, very recently, um, you know, over the last year or so, I'm like, damn, like having a network is really important. And it's been great. It's put me in positions to, you know, for example, I'm be chatting with Ben one-on-one next week or a couple of weeks from now to get some advice on how I can crush it in this new role at Comet. I got, you know, one-on-one call coming up with uh, with Vin again for more advice on how to uh, just, you know, help Comet be as successful as possible in this role while making sure that I enjoy myself. Um, so having these type of connections is it's awesome. And it wouldn't have happened if I didn't build a network and try to build a community. And, and do that. Yeah. And one thing about that is it's, it's a lagging indicator a lot of times, or like the, the, the outcomes of that are a lagging indicator, yeah. right? Like it's not something where you see the, it's not a vending machine. I think like this building this sense of who you are in this community of people and, and what you want out of it is not a vending machine. So that's like some of these questions about like, should I choose this or this? Um, it's like, you might not see it's, it is, it's a lagging indicator. Like, you know, you're saying like, oh man, like a year on after kind of like taking on this thing, like things start happening, things start coming to fruition. And I saw that in my previous role as well, where it's like, you have to sort of, and to even take the advice from someone else and to know which advice to pay attention to, I think you have to have that sort of built up sense of yourself. Um, otherwise it's so easy to oscillate between one person's opinion and another person's opinion and just be ping pong back and forth and never be able to put that advice and, and those sorts of things in context. So like, building that sort of sense of yourself through community, through these different levers is like, it ends up being a lagging indicator, but when it comes time to make those decisions and you can weigh advice appropriately based on what you also want, what you're building for yourself. Like it's sort of, this is sort of an abstract idea, but it's, it's super important to like, again, like it's not a vending machine. You can't just put in like X amount of hours into a decision and get out the outcome you want. It's like, the, it's this thing that's built up over time and this sense of self. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I feel that very strongly and it's hard to put into words, but it's like a true thing. And like, I've seen it with you, Heartbreak, like just in the, even in the time we've been working together and, and myself as well. It's like, it's really, really important stuff. Yeah, man. Oh dude, I was thinking about this uh, just last night. Cause I'm like, fuck man, like I work so damn hard. Like I'm doing all this stuff and you know, like, will the seeds ever, ever, you know, blossom? And then I was like, you know what? Typically when you plant a seed, you don't just get a tree that you could sit under in two weeks. Like it takes time. It takes energy. It takes effort. And uh, you just, yeah, you keep, keep working at it. And then opportunities do happen. Right. Um, and, and I was thinking, I was like, you know, like, yeah, actually all the hard work and effort did pay off because I put myself in these types of positions to take advantage of these type of opportunities that, that pop up. Right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the point to that is, uh, yeah, you, you can't plant a seed and then sit under shade in two weeks. It it, it takes takes time. Uh, ben, I like this little uh, anecdote you have here. It's an anecdote or story. I don't I don't know what it, what it would be, but uh, I, I was reacting to the lagging indicator. So I've had I've had things happen that were seven years later, two years later. You you never know. Like a, a random talk, I I gave a talk to university to the math department is like the graduate math department. And I remember leaving that talk and I was angry. I was angry. Like, why, what the hell am I doing here? Took time away from the family. My wife's not like, she's frustrated with me. And then two years later, someone reaches out and says, Hey, I saw you present to my math class. I'm a you know VP at Goldman Sachs. Would you come present to 70 business analysts? But like two years later, and then seven years later, that story in the chat about Jeremy tried to hire this random person. And then seven years later, I sell my company to his bigger company. Like you, yeah. <laughs> you never know. You never know when it's going to come back around. Yeah. He's, 
like that that just we want it now type of mentality you know you gotta you gotta yeah put in effort and and wait and just let them happen happen right what's the uh, what's the saying gotta gotta let go and let god <laughs> i like that saying like i mean I, th- I thought that was interesting just do do the work handle business let go of the outcomes and like things that happened like you know ben's talking about eight years later this thing just pays off massively so well, there's a lot to be said too for um giving one way and, and maybe that's not a good way to say it but like if you are helping someone or doing something because like pretend if i come to you and if i say hey i'd like to present to your college and then you bring me in there and then i present but i very much turn it to like a buy data robot and like come here and reach it then you feel like you kind of feel like you've been like shady salesman like i've kind of swap the value prop, but the more you can kind of give a hundred percent with nothing in return, that's when I've been so surprised when it comes back around. So, you know, see how you can help people in the community, um, be a hundred percent authentic and never have like this tip for tat approach. Like, Hey, our breed, yeah. I'm going to come visit you when I'm in town, but only if you sit through a data robot demo, like that would be like, no, go away. Like you're gross. I don't want to talk to you. Like it's all about these authentic human connections first. Yep. Yep. That's how you start playing positive some games, right? That's how everyone starts winning. Um, Asha, I know you had a question. Let's uh, close it off with that, and then we'll wrap up the uh, session. I don't see any other questions coming in from YouTube, Twitch, or or LinkedIn. So we'll, we'll wrap it up with Asha's question. Um, my question was on <clears throat> model validation when you build it. So my process this far, I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, I've Googled it, but I'm pretty sure mine is very ineffective. My first step is to build a model the easiest I can. Then the next step is to build something more complicated that needs to be that. Then after that, I try and see if there's a third option. Are there any tips and tricks you've picked up along the way of, in terms of model validation? Yeah, I think that's kind of like the the artistic side of it, right? You can be a little bit creative the way you do that. So definitely, I like the first step is this, you know creating a baseline, right? A naive baseline. So what I will do is I'll create like the let's just assume we're working on a regression problem, and uh, I'll create the most uh, the absolute most naive baseline, which is I'm going to predict the mean value of my train set for the test set, right? And then get the error term for that. Very, very naive. Uh, then from that, I'll probably go into another just super simple method. And maybe that super simple method is just linear regression with maybe L1 regularization, right? Shrinking unimportant terms to zero and see how that improves over the baseline. So now I have two baselines. And then from there, I'll start with maybe three or four different candidate models. Like I'll have an intuition like, okay, well, I engineered the features this way and I've, I've done this. I've you know, I kind of feel like that the way I've engineered the features lends itself to tree-based models. So maybe I'll try like four or five different tree-based models. And then from there, whichever ones end up being a top performer, if there's one top performer, then I'll just take that top performer and fine-tune that. And so this stage that I just talked about, where you have your spot-checking candidate models, like these are like out-of-the-box default hyperparameters um, that, that I'm fitting them with. I haven't optimized anything. So if there's a tie, then I'll, I'll take both of them. Like if there's two models that tie, I'll take both of them and then I'll tune both of them and then just serve the average prediction. And then maybe later in production, I will uh, shadow test both models. So I'll serve the prediction on the, the, the end, but then on the back end, I'm collecting data on how each individual model had performed. And then I'll do some statistical tests to see which one actually does a better job. That's the, the fitting. And then if, if, if the results warrant it, then just swap out the uh, the average model for the one that does better. Um, ben, what do you think? I, I, I love this question. I was going to say real quick. Um, I've mistakes. I've made mistakes in the past where I tried to validate the model for me, and that's very short sighted. How do I validate the model for 
who matters and who matters is not the data scientist who matters is going to be the domain expert because you and I could be having, you and I could be celebrating and saying, oh my gosh, can you believe that our AUC is 0.93? Who knew this is going to change the business? Like we're going out for drinks. We just can't believe how awesome it is. And if we go show the domain expert that model, they might look at the feature importance impact, like what is driving your model? They don't know what that statistical metric means, but they might look at it and say, I absolutely hate this because you have customer color as a leading indicator in the churn and that's bullshit. And the data science team don't even, they're like, what are you talking about? And so I'm a huge fan in get, or sometimes you're in a scenario where you're talking to an executive and you're like, hey, the model's this accurate. Uh, do you think it's, we should turn it on? Like you're actually asking the executive and that is totally the wrong mindset. Like you need to take ownership. And so get the subject matter and expert in the room, have them validate what's going into the model. And then see if they can translate the output of the model to not a statistical metric. But how would you measure this KPI? How are you measuring this KPI today without the model? And how would you defend value for this? Because you win if you have a SME defending your model with a dollar sign. And that's really hard to get there, but you can get there with assumptions. But most people, I've made the mistake that I don't even think about them. I'm just like, oh, marketing, sales, easy. I'll just like build this model in Salesforce. Like I don't need people to help me. And that's where you get in trouble. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And like real world example, something I was doing at price, like I built a model and um, it was getting decent results, but you know, was talking with the, uh, the people who are actually using the model and they noticed that I was using a particular feature uh, and there, and that particular feature was the basis for other features that I'd engineered. And they're like, oh, we don't like that. Uh, yes, it, it is ranking as the most important features. Yes, um, but we don't want to include that at all. Like we, like we would rather have a less accurate model than include those particular features in. Um, so we had to rebuild everything. Um, I mean, it wasn't terrible, but still, just to Ben's point, that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> get the, the subject matter experts involved. Austin, this is a, a, it's a great point you're making here. We talked about this last week as well. Go for it. Yeah, so we were. It's just the this was very much referenced in the industry Q and A. We talked a lot about domain expertise because the the theme of it was collaboration in data science and machine learning and tooling around that and processes around that. And the CEO of Gradio, which I was talking about, is this GUI that helps you build models and the sort of test versions of them very quickly in this sort of like interface web app type of environment. And he was talking about how um, there's like an echocardiogram type of model. That, that mimicked this this process and and the, the the domain experts knew how to test how to like test this like idea of like pacemakers basically and like how to when they were testing the model they knew the edge kind of edge conditions or edge cases they wanted to test against like you know like okay my expertise is the model able to you know perform something i think is difficult as a domain expert and if it was, it's like, holy shit, that actually works versus like if you're just testing the model's predictions and accuracy and these metrics that are sort of divorced from that domain expertise, then it's really tough to know, like, is the end user actually going to um, be able to use this in any intelligible way? So I think like, you know, collaboration in terms of machine learning and, and the model development has to involve that end user Um to some extent or another, whether it's in the medical field or, or elsewhere, it's like, you know, um, if you like, that's kind of why I was interested in this idea of products that, that have ML because like, how are you testing? How are you um, actually bringing in your end user to, to validate? And that can, you know, you can put a, a, a first version of a model in front of someone and get so much more feedback about what it actually needs to be doing um, as opposed to just running it against a validation test. So it's like optimizing the model for real world conditions and not just a validation set. Because the validation set does not include that range of domain expertise that's actually needed to see, is this going to work in real world settings? Is this going to work as a product that people can use that automate those things that are like, you know, what do I want to do less of and what do I want to do better? That sort of thing you were talking about, Ben, earlier too. It's like, that's, those are the conditions under which, you know, we can iterate and develop more quickly. I, 
that struck me as like a really great point that I hadn't thought of. Um, and so that's just something I wanted to throw in there on that, on that point as well. I, I love all that, Austin. To throw some MSG sprinkles on top of that, I'd say when you meet with the SME, you should say, how is this model going to get you promoted? Or like, how am I going to get you promoted? Like, let me understand your OKRs, your KPIs. Like, you'll learn more in an hour meeting with a SME than you will in six hours with an army of PhDs trying to bash their brains together about the, yeah. The dumb things we do in the past that we'll never do again, right? And just for, for clarity, anybody wondering, SME, that's S-M-E, subject matter expert. All right. Um, Asha, any follow-up questions or follow-up comments or anything on that? No, thank you. That has helped. At least awesome. I know like, ineffective ways on the right path, apart from the asking questions bit. I've been skipping that bit a lot. Don't skip that bit. That, that's very important. <laughs> All right, guys. So let's go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for joining in. Um, definitely, you know, be sure to check the episode that I released earlier this week on Friday with Lillian Pearson. Uh, got one next week with uh, Jonathan Tesser. I think everybody here might be familiar with Jonathan Tesser. He's quite big on, on LinkedIn. So that was great chatting with him. Uh, then more and more interesting episodes coming out. Ben, thank you so much for, for joining in with us here today. Shout out to everybody else joining. Austin, Chris, Russell, Asha, everybody that was here in the chat and on LinkedIn. Appreciate having you guys here. Uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. My friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Here's everyone.